you have your Bibles with you, please grab it or on your phone app. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, where we're going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series on fasting. Okay? So let's grab your Bibles and we're going to read the text together. Please follow along with me as I read. Jesus speaking here says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, the uh, biblical practice of fasting is really, I would say, unfamiliar to the vast majority of North Americans, Christians. Now, I know that in the Protestant camp, a number of people think, well, oh, this is like a Catholic Lent sort of thing. And there are others who think that, oh, fasting is probably for those people who live in monasteries, very holy monks, you know, who practice this on a regular basis. But certainly it's not for ordinary Christians. But if you look back in church history, you realize that Christians didn't always think this way. For example, if you look at what the early church fathers had to say, like Tertullian, he considered fasting to be a key component of the Christian life. If you look at an early Christian discipleship manual called the Didache, it talked about how those who were getting ready to be baptized, as well as those who were baptizing them, should actually take the, a day or two before the baptism to spend their time in fasting together. Now, if you look at the reformers as well, like Martin Luther and others as well, you realize that they also advocated for fasting. It was a regular part of their lives. John Wesley, who was known as the great English uh, preacher, when during his time as a student at Oxford, dedicated every single Wednesday of his time there to fasting as he battled with his own personal sin. Pastor Xi, a Chinese church leader, this is outside of the North American European context, created an opium detox program that was a combination of pills and prayer and fasting that he required of individuals who came to him uh, to be free of their addiction. And he led them basically to faith in Jesus Christ. And he set hundreds, thousands of people free as a result of this. You look at, for example, Princeton Seminary's 1810 charter for the training of pastors. And it said this for its pastoral students. It is also wished and recommended that each student should ordinarily set apart one day in a month for special prayer and self-examination in secret, accompanied with fasting. And you look at this, and I, and I go, wow, how the times have changed. Like, I don't know many seminaries today that actually require, along with the students' course loads, for them to spend time actually in secret prayer and fasting. You know, Richard Foster wrote the well-known book that some of you probably have read, uh, The Celebration of Discipline, talked about how he observed as he was doing his research that between 1861 and 1954, there were no published works, no books that were released on the subject of fasting. Telling, right, you know, about what was happening in our culture during this time. Now, today, I'm actually glad that there seems to be a renewed interest in the subject of prayer and also in fasting, and that people are publishing material on this, and that people are bringing it back. I think it's important for us to understand as Christians that Jesus assumed that fasting would be something normal in his disciples' lives. 
if you read our passage, the passage does not say if you fast. Here it says when you fast. So the assumption is that his followers will fast. And fasting actually along with giving to the needy and praying to God are a series of three things that Jesus says all of his disciples will do. That's how Matthew chapter 6 reads, one after another. We're on number three. This is what will be characteristic of his believers' lives. Now, just to be clear about what we mean when we're talking about biblical fasting, let me define it this way. This is my definition that I give. Biblical fasting is abstaining from food and or water to help us focus solely on God as we seek him in fervent prayer. That's the point, I would say, of biblical fasting. It's not a weight loss diet sort of thing or a get healthy thing. Primarily, it's about seeking God in prayer. Okay? It's not just about deprivation. It's about actually being filled with God himself as we go to him and we seek his face. So it's not just a, some ritual that you perform for 40 days or a month because you're obligated to and you'll be punished if you don't. You, you, you want to fast. Why? Because you actually want to go deep with God. And when you do, whether in the scriptures or in church history, what we see clearly is that amazing things happen as we go to God and we ask him. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God, a thirst, a living thirst for a knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see him acting, manifesting himself and his power, rising and scattering his enemies, the thirst for God and the longing for the exhibition of his glory are essential preliminaries to revival. So in other words, what Lloyd-Jones has noted is that you want to see God move and work in your city or your time. All the revivals of history have always been preceded by times in which Christians have deprived themselves of food in order to satiate themselves and to feast on God. See, fasting is about savoring and enjoying the glory of God. And it's ultimately what we as Christians crave the most in our souls. But the truth of the matter is that today, especially in North America, there are many things that compete with our affections, for our affections, and try to displace God. I like what Edward Farrell had to say, which I think he's right. He said, Almost everywhere, at all times, fasting has held a place of great importance since it is closely linked with the intimate sense of religion. Perhaps this is the explanation for the demise, demise of fasting in our day. When the sense of God diminishes, fasting disappears. I think it's so true. See, when we see in our lives as North American Christians that we don't fast, the question that we actually have to ask ourselves is, why? Why don't we fast? Is it because our sense of wonder and amazement at who God is has actually disappeared? Do we actually desire God? Do we as a people want Him today? Do we long to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to experience Him and to see Him move in human history right now, changing and affecting not only our lives, but also the lives of of people around us. Do we want God? That's the question we have to ask. And if we want Him, how badly do we want Him? You know, where we go when the going gets 
tough tells us a lot about what we actually desire inside our hearts. Now, if you look at the biblical accounts, for example, there are so many instances of fasting, both in the Old Testament and in the New. For example, you read Psalm 35, verse 13, read about David, who says that he fasts and he afflicts himself and he prays for the healing of his close friends who are obviously very, very ill, wants God to help them. For Samuel chapter 1, Hannah prays fervently about her infertility, her barrenness, begging God that she can have a child. 1 Kings 21, King Ahab actually fasts and prays to express his sorrow and his repentance for his sin as he'd been confronted with him. 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Israelites actually fast and pray to God to deliver them from the Philistines who are attacking them. They need his help. In the book of Esther, you read the story about the young Jewish queen who calls her people to fast and pray from water and drink for three days so that she might have favor from King Xerxes when she goes to see him and might not die even though she's unexpected as she pleads and begs for the lives of the Jewish people. That's a very serious thing. Acts chapter 13, you read about the early church praying and fasting together when the apostles are there and there's other members of the church are there and they're praying and the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. And so they commission them and they send them off with prayer and fasting as well. In Luke chapter 2, we see the very curious case of Anna, who is like 84 years old. And the text tells us that since she became a widow decades earlier, she had basically spent her entirety of her adult life going to the temple, praying and fasting day and night, basically so much so that she functionally lived there praying and seeking God. And the text tells us when baby Jesus shows up, she recognizes him for who he is, and she goes and speaks to everyone, declaring to them and rejoicing about how the redemption of Jerusalem is here. See, do you know what all these stories actually have in common when you think about it? It's that it's fasting in response to a either great desire or a need or a crisis that has arisen. See, this is so different from our world. Now, our world teaches us, when the going gets tough, guess what? Well, the tough get going. You know what the Bible says? The Bible teaches us this. It says, when the going gets tough, the saints actually get going on their knees. See, this is how God's people have always advanced. Not with their heads held up high in pride, like I'm an achiever, I'm a, I'm a great conqueror, I can do this. No, but with, with, with pride in their chest, no, believers advance forward on their knees with head to the ground in humility and saying, God, you are the water masses. You are in control. Father, please help me. Change things. Make things different. Hear my prayers. You know, when we look at Matthew chapter 6, and we think about the chapter, you know, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting, this series of three things that Jesus commands his disciples to do, what you see is actually then all these spiritual disciplines, he uses the same sort of five-fold structure to instruct his disciples on what to do with these commands. So five things he says. One, he says he looks at the situation and he says, when you, then he gives a negative command, number two, and says, do not. 
third thing he explains is the reason for his negative command. This is why you do not, because truly I say to you, and then so on. And then he gives the positive command, number four, and says, but when you do this, and then five, he gives the reason for the positive command, your father who sees in secret. Now, this is fascinating because when you think about how Jesus instructs and he teaches, especially about the topic of fasting or prayer or giving to the needy, he doesn't just tell us what to do, but he also tells us what not to do. And he tells us the reason why we should do what we do and also why we shouldn't do what we do. Jesus is not interested in just remote, just parrot sort of type Christianity in which we just follow blindly and do it because we say that he should. He gives reasons. You know, let's look again at verse 16 to see, to see the situation, the negative command, and the reason for the negative command. Okay, first three things. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now this word that we translate here as gloomy really appears only four times in the scriptures. Um, and it refers really to an upset face that's easily noticed by other people. Now, for example, if you look at the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 40, verse 7, it tells the story of Joseph, who's there working in the prison, and he notices that Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker are in the prison, and they've just been thrown in there as a result of Pharaoh being angry at them, and it, the text says that they have gloomy faces. It's the same word that's used there. So if you think about what Jesus is saying here, what he's what saying is when is you fast, don't walk around with a face that looks like you just got thrown in jail or you just lost your job, right? For all the world to see. And in fact, what he's saying is here, he notes that this is what the hypocrites do. They put on these long faces. They do something to their faces, make themselves look so gloomy so that everybody knows what they're doing. Now, the word that's translated here as disfigure, in most instances, actually means to destroy. That's quite what it literally means. And you can see this, actually, if you go on just a few verses later in Matthew 16, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, just a few verses down, where he talks about uh, earthly treasures that are being destroyed, same word here, by moth and rust. Now, here in this passage, the way that he's using the word is somewhat metaphorical as well. There's a type of destruction that's going on to the face. In other words, what they're doing is they're, they're doing something, whether dumping ashes on their face and uh, making it ugly, so that it literally is being like destroyed in some form or another. And this is done for the express purpose that Jesus knows to indicate to people that, hey, everybody, guess what? I'm fasting right now. You should all know I'm fasting. Look at my dirty face. It's unrecognizable. I'm fasting, communing with God here, serious work. Now, this, I think, does probably refer to a customary practice of the time that many people practiced in the ancient world as well, basically the smearing of dirt or ashes on the face while wearing sackcloth to show that you are grieving or mourning over something. One of the clearest examples that you can see of this is in the Old Testament if you read the book of Jonah. So Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 to 7 talks about what happens after Jonah actually calls the Ninevites to repent of their sin. The text says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man 
nor beast, herd, nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. This was basically in response to the preaching of Jonah. He says, nobody's going to eat while we mourn and we fast and repent. Now, when you go to Jesus' time, fasting was quite normal. And you can see in Jesus' talk that some of the Pharisees obviously fasted like twice a week as well. And their fasting was often accompanied by outward signs just like this. Putting on something different. Smearing something on your face so that everybody knows that you're fasting. Now, this is exactly where the danger comes. See, Jesus is not condemning fasting per se. Like he's not against the practice of fasting. But what he is against is the practice of fasting to earn the praise and admiration of people. That's actually where the danger comes from. And if you're doing that, Jesus says, you already have your reward. You want the praise of man? Guess what? You just got the praise of other people. See, Jesus knew just how much the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day loved the praise of people over the praise of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40 says this. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, remember that this isn't just a danger with fasting, but it's a danger with regards to prayer, giving to the needy, basically any act of righteousness that is done for the selfish inner motivation to make people admire you rather than to simply do it out of service to God. You know, you, for example, in our world today, this could easily look like for yourself, you know, if you're a person who likes going around talking to people about like, oh, could you just, oh, I just hope you pray for me. I'm like, you know, I'm working with Martha. She's really difficult to work with. And I guess God is allowing me to suffer and have a really difficult time. But I just really need your prayer request because she's so difficult. Do you know what happened last week? And, you know, you end up gossiping. And the question you have to ask for yourself is, do you really want prayer? Or is it what you really want people to know? is that you're such a great Christian who's always out there serving other people, doing things for them, and, and attracting praise for them for your endeavors. What if nobody knew about it, or your prayer requests were anonymous? Would you still be interested in having people pray for you? See, what's actually in your heart? Do you want prayer, or do you want praise from other people? Why do you share the things that you do? Why do you do the things that you do? You know, it's very hard because people can't really read the heart, your heart. But sometimes the actions that we do in service to the Lord are actually done because we want praise from other people and we're willing to use God to get praise for ourselves. See, praise and prayer, I mean, prayer and fasting and giving to the needy is done for God. It's an act of worship to Him. It can't be done in an ostentatious manner then to attract attention to ourselves. Now, look at Jesus' instructions here in verse 17 and 18 on what his followers are to do instead and why. Okay? The text says this, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So when Jesus' disciples fast, 
they're supposed to actually wash their face and anoint themselves with oil. That's basically an ancient version of like shampoo and soap. Make yourself clean and presentable so that you look like you normally do. Now, I know what this means for like ladies in our world uh, looking normal, right? You get up in the morning and then you uh, take a little of that primer and you pat it over your face and then you get your foundation, right? And you smother that stuff on, right? To make a nice canvas for yourself. You get out your favorite like Maybelline uh, concealer or whatever and you touch up all the spots that you just really don't like and it stare out to you there in the mirror. And then you don't like your eyelashes, so you get a little mascara, some volumizing mascara, and then you just adjust the tips of your eyelids so they make your eyes a little bigger. And you just, you just work on this thing, right, to kind of make yourself appear more normal, more presentable as you go outside. The list goes on about all these things. No, I get it. Okay, I get it. You, you want to look good, but you have to be careful that your appearance doesn't become a god to you or an idol. You know what? Why I mention that is because what Jesus is saying here, he's saying is don't turn spiritual practices into spiritual makeup to enhance your image and to make people see something that is actually not really there. Like dropping hints about your tithing or how you're so busy always helping people, you know, and having to drive around, how much money you spend on your gas as you're delivering things and doing things for other people. You know, this is effectively covering your image, your spiritual image of yourself with this slight primer or foundation of generosity, just a little bit, right? Perhaps maybe you script or you plan your prayers or that you post things only after working them through really carefully, heavily editing them so it's so perfect. And then when people see your great spiritual post, they're like, wow, what a spiritual giant so-and-so is. I can't imagine, like, it's so amazing what they're always posting these things about Jesus. And yet, it's just concealer, right? Concealer to conceal the fact that your own spiritual life is actually in shambles. You know, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and other religious leaders had their own favorite tray, basically, of a spiritual line of Mac or fasting ash, you know, 3221 or whatever it is. You know, they number all these things. And they took it out and they would plastered all over their faces, thinking as they look in their mirror, oh, I don't look so good today. You know what I really want people to see? I want them to see a spiritual person. So you get up and you say, let's dab a little bit of ash here, put on my foundation here, touch of generosity, smear this on good. Now I can go out in public and everybody's going to know what I am. See, this is Jesus' point. Don't turn spiritual practices into spiritual makeup. Why? Because you don't practice these things, you don't fast, you don't pray to be seen by people. You do these things because you want God, you want to honor God, you want to worship God. It's all about God. And in fact, when you fast, you pray, or you do things like this, one, you realize your heart is actually really obviously in the wrong praise place because you love the praise that comes from man and not so much the praise from God. And two, you realize that you've actually committed a great crime in turning God, who deserves your greatest love and your affection and your heart, into just a tool to get what you truly want in your heart. And that is terrible. You know what it's like to be a tool? You know, I've often heard stories of people uh, engaging in what is called revenge dating. Do you know what revenge dating is? Revenge dating is like 
this. Imagine that you have this girl named Jill and she gets dumped by her boyfriend, Jack. And so she immediately goes out and she starts dating a guy named, let's say, Brian. And then she posts on social media everywhere about how much happier she is with Brian and that her relationship is so good. She's never had it better. Look at this great dinner that we went out to. So the whole world knows. And then if you were Brian, maybe you'd be pretty excited that, you know, Jill really likes you and you like her back and uh, you're pretty happy. But what if you being Brian accidentally found Jill's diary and you read in Jill's diary this, had a great date with Brian last night at the keg. I timed it perfectly. My ex, Jack, was on shift. And guess what? He had to serve us food. So great seeing him squirm, hoping he calls and pleads to get back with me. Question. How would you feel if you were Brian and you read that and you discovered Jill's secret diary? Used, angry, outraged, furious? I think so. Why? Because the diary shows that Jill actually doesn't love him. Brian's just a tool to get what she really, really wants. And that's outrageously hurtful, deceptive dishonoring, and insulting to Brian as a person. You know, the truth of the matter is, church, this is exactly what we do with God. When we fast, or we pray, or we give, so that we can have other people's affection. And just because God hasn't sent a bolt of lightning out from the sky does not mean that he is not hurt, outraged, and angry with this kind of deception and being treated like a tool. It's so dishonoring to turn spiritual practices like this into something that's like makeup. And what that functionally is, is spiritual adultery, using God to get in bed with another lover. It's cheating on the very one who called us into an exclusive relationship with himself and who saved us with his very own blood, paying for it with his son. Jesus is so concerned about the heart. And the question for us as we look at this is, where is your heart today? Why do you do the things that you do? Do you do it out of habit? Or do you do it because it's your soul's delight to be able to commune with God, give on behalf of the ministry, or to pray because you love your Father? Or is your father just a tool to get what you really, really want? Are you cheating on God? Have you been cheating on God? Don't be foolish and think that God cannot read your spiritual diary. He sees everything in your heart. He is not fooled. I want to talk about three things that I think we can learn from this text about the practicality of practicing secret fasting. What secret fasting actually shows what it does for us. Okay, three things. Then. Let's, let's look at them. Number one, secret fasting shows what you really love. Now, if Jesus Christ is your soul's delight and your ultimate happiness, you can fast and you can pray even when no one is watching. 
You know, lovers don't spend time with each other only when they have their phones and can post about it all over social media and take wonderful pictures. No, lovers don't care about that thing. They're there for each other, not because they can have Instagram-worthy photos. See, the same thing goes for us as Christians. Neither do we spend time with God solely for the sake of advertising it to the whole world about what we're doing. We spend time with the Father because we love the Father. We desire Him. We love Him for what He has done for us. And we honor Him when we go to Him as our Father and we bring our deepest needs and our problems to Him first before we run to anyone or anything else. See, secret fasting, if you do it, really shows what your heart loves. You know, my family is originally from Singapore, and many families there have what we call live-in maids or house helps. They basically stay with the family, and they do a whole bunch of things for them 24-7. Most parents in Singapore, both of them who have kids, usually work. And the maids then are the ones who often feed the kids, they walk them to school, they clean up after them, and so on. I remember hearing the story of one mother one time who talked about one day how her son got hurt. And as he was screaming, she went to pick him up and comfort him, but he pushed her away and yelled, no, I want Amini, I want the name of the maid, I want Amini, Amini instead, no. And when she heard that, it broke her heart as she realized that what had happened. See, even though she as a mother had given birth to her child and nursed him herself, as the years had gone by and she continued at her workplace and the maid continued to care for her son, bit by bit, her maid had actually become his functional mother. See, the maid was the one who nourished him. The maid was the one who took him to school. The maid was the one who dealt with his problems, actually, when life was tough. And she was the one that he turned to for comfort in his deepest and darkest times of trial as a little child. You know, if this was you, question, as a parent, how would you feel? How would you feel if your child cried for help and the one they wanted most was not mommy or daddy, but someone else? You know what secret fasting actually shows you? It shows you this. It shows you whether God is actually your treasure, whether you really think of him as father, whether you run to him as dad first, or perhaps in this world, if you run to other things, Maybe what you have is a live-in maid. Something else that you always turn to. And it could be your bank account. It could be your friends or something else. But the point is, it's anything else other than God. See, friends and money aren't wrong to have. It's not wrong to have somebody who helps you and you pay to help you around your house. But what we have to realize is that the greatest enemy to our souls is not often what we think it is, but it can actually be God's gifts to us, used incorrectly. I love what John Piper notes in his book about prayer and fasting. Fantastic book. I would recommend that everyone read this. Greatest enemy of hunger, he says, for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Luke 14, 8 to 20, 18 to 20. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. 
and the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. I think it's so right. See, you don't have to be in Christianity very long to realize this, that the love of God usually is not lost overnight. It actually goes rather slowly. Just like how the Singaporean mother was slowly displaced by her maid, her maid, that's usually what happens, actually, to Christians who lose their first love over time. For example, when you're a young Christian, you might actually have zeal for God, and you, know, you go out there and you want to do things for Jesus. You're so excited. And you're like, how come nobody's ever discovered this before? And, but, but the truth of the matter is because you're so young and zealous, very few people admire you. In fact, oftentimes, older, more mature Christians have to put up with you with your foolish words, your judgments, and you're like thinking you can solve all the problems of the world when really you don't know very much at all. But it's good. You have zeal. And if God is gracious towards you, you will grow. You'll make mistakes. You'll grow from these things. And as you live and you begin to know God's word better and you are, have some of the rough edges rounded out of your personality, people actually start to come to you. They're not afraid of you anymore. They come to you. They ask you for a little advice from the Bible, what they should do in their life. They want your help and comfort. They might ask you to lead a Bible study. And then they ask you to pray for them, maybe even preach in their little youth group gathering or something, or even preach in their church. And then after a while, they start to invite you and they say, could you blog about something? Or we want you to come to a conference and eventually maybe you become like a speaker or something. And, you know, they, they generally begin to look at you and admire you and say all these things about like how godly you are. And look, as so long as you're biblical, it's, it's okay to trust you. It's not a bad thing. But here's the danger. You started off actually by pursuing God for the sake of God. You wanted to know him through prayer and the word. And as a result of that, God changed you and molded you to be more like Jesus. But over time, as you became good at it, people looked at you and started to admire you for your spirituality. And slowly, bit by bit, in your heart, your motive shifted. And you began to study the word, and God, the word of God and to pray, not for the sake of God anymore and growing in him, but for the sake of garnering the praise and admiration from other people. And it's so dangerous because this self-deception occurs so gradually. And generally speaking, those who surround you and admire you for that won't notice it because they're thrilled and excited about how you can help them. And they're blessed by you and they don't even suspect it. It's a real danger that I think about on a regular basis. I have to be really concerned, actually, about this in my own soul. See, unless God gives you eyes to see and you're walking with him, you know, and, and, he's, and you're, you're, you're open and you're raw about it and say, God, don't let me go this way. You run the real risk of straying off the narrow road that leads to life and walking the road that's broad, full of the praise of man that actually leads to destruction, all with sermons on your lips and people praising you for your godliness. Nothing wrong on the outside, but everything wrong on the inside with a corrupt heart. See, is it wrong to teach Bible studies or to pray or to do good things? No, it's not. It's not wrong. Is it wrong for people to express their appreciation to you for how you've ministered the word of God in their lives and helped and encouraged them? No, it's not wrong. The Bible commands us to encourage one another to build each other up. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is wrong for you if those comments become the food which sustains you every single day and that you ultimately can't live without. 
And that when people don't admire you anymore, you lose your complete will for living and doing any Christian ministry. If that's you, you have to do a real soul check and ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Do I do it because I want to honor the Lord or do I do it to garner the praise of man? And the answer is the second one. You be careful and you repent of that idolatry and turn back to God and say, God, let me have you once again. Let me have my first love back. I don't want to do these things anymore to garner praise from people. I don't like what I've become. As I've looked into my own soul, I see species of pride that were not there before because of what you've given me, these gifts, and how I've abused them. God, don't let me live this way. Do you pray that? Church, friends, do you think about that? Or are you just content to soak up the praises of people without checking your own soul and your motives? See, how many Christians have survived the test of deprivation and persecution, but have been absolutely destroyed by the tests and trials of praise? It was a Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, addressing pastors who said this, If Satan can only make a covetous minister a lover of praise, of pleasure, of good eating, he has ruined your ministry. You can destroy your ministry with praise. That is, taking that praise really to heart and thinking there's something that didn't add up. Same goes for any Christian, though, not just pastor. See, it's not just lying, cheating, and stealing, and adultery, the obvious sins that will destroy you, but also the very secret sins of the heart. Using Bible studies, prayer, and scriptures to win the admiration of people, these things will kill you. See, for the Jews, fasting was an outward sign of an inner reality. But you know what Jesus is saying here for his disciples? Fasting is actually an inward sign of an inner transformation. It's about the heart. Second thing, let me say this about what we learn about secret fasting. Number two, secret fasting is rewarded by God. Now, our text says here that God rewards those who pray, fast, and give in secret. Now, this doesn't mean here that God is a genie and that if you rub his lamp the right way, he's obligated now through your fasting to uh, give you the three wishes that you desire of your heart. Okay? All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we get a very clear picture that God is our Father, and why he responds to us is not because he's a genie who's obligated to, but because he cares about us and he hears his children's crying. He will answer. Now, some of you actually might remember who were here about three years ago. Um, I actually did a three-part series, both at Westland and Acts 242, on fasting. And this was before our churches had ever actually met each other. Now, I would preach at Westland on some of those Sunday mornings, and then I would run over to Acts in the evening afterwards, and I would preach similar messages on this sort of series. And the series, I felt, was so appropriate because Westland at that time was seeking a pastor and trying to discern God's will for the church and where they were going to go. Acts 2.42, we were seeking God through a month of prayer and fasting as we contemplated the expiry of our contract with where we were renting from, asking God, where do you want us to go? Should we move places? How do you want us to function as a church? Do you want us to stay together? And the conclusion we came to during that really intense time of prayer and fasting was three things. One was that God wanted us to stay together as a church. Two, we were to practice hospitality in our homes. And three, 
if we really needed a building and a place to meet permanently, God would provide that for us. That was our deep conviction. We didn't have $9 million in the bank to pay for the only church that was selling at that time in Burnaby. Uh, that was the only thing that was really on the market, you know, but we're like, we can't afford that, so what are we supposed to do? But God just impressed on us through that time, don't worry, I'll take care of it. You know what's really funny is looking back on my diaries from three years ago and thinking about that time now, how God was laying the foundation for a merger to answer the prayers and fasting of two different churches didn't even know each other at that time, you know? As we went to him on our knees before God, we had no idea how he would answer. Now we look at that, we say, how amazing the work of God is. None of us ever imagined such a thing. I never imagined that God would answer our prayer and fasting by bringing us together and making two groups of people that I had come to love through my time here and also wandering around in Coquitlam. I never imagined he would bring all of them together and say, you can have it all, Sam. People that you really like and that you love and that you can minister to even today. That's the only reason why we're live streaming today. Oh, God rewards his saints. You know, if we ask for things concerning his kingdom and his righteousness, not a new Lamborghini for ourselves to spend it on our own adulterous pleasures, but we ask for things that accord with his will, do you not think that the Father in heaven, as we plead with him, will answer us? As we as children fast and plead with him, the Father delights to hear our prayers and to come before us and say, I'll give you what you need, child. You belong to my kingdom. I like seeing my kingdom expand and grow. Of course, I'll answer you. Just in my time, God loves the secret groanings and prayers of our hearts because he knows we do those things only because we want him. You know, friends, Jesus asked a blind man and cried out to him for mercy, what do you want me to do for you? And he asked the same question to us today. Do you have a dire need in your life? Is something going on right now that you need God to do for you and that only he can do? Have you tried your friends? Have you tried medicine? Have you tried money? And all those things have failed. You know what Jesus is saying here? Go to God. Go to God in secret prayer and fasting. Go to him, seek him earnestly, and see if he will not answer you because he's your father. Number three here. Secret fasting is feasting on Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17 says this. And the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they'll fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. Now in the Old Testament, we see that uh, Old Testament faithful people like Anna, basically they fasted and they prayed. Why? Because they longed for God's presence and for his redemption to come. And this is what makes Jesus' words here so absolutely shocking. Jesus here is saying, do you know why my disciples, God's faithful, don't fast, unlike Old Testament saints like Anna? It's because they have received God's redemption. And guess who it is? God's redemption is me. You don't have to fast when you've got me because I am the answer. I am what you're looking for. I am what your soul honestly longs for. 
When people have the bridegroom, who is me? They don't fast. I know the time is coming, actually, when I'm going to be taken away and people are going to fast, but they're going to fast because they don't have me. And what they want is me. So don't try to take those old wineskins of Judaism and take the newness of this new covenant and pour it into that. It's not going to work. It's not going to fit. It's going to explode. You know, wine in the ancient world was a symbol of joy. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you drink from me, drink from this new wine, you will have ultimate joy. The ultimate joy is me. And yes, mourn and fast when I'm gone. But your ultimate joy is me. And one day you will drink from me again. So that's why you don't fast when Jesus is with you, but you fast to have him come and be with you. Brothers and sisters, you see the reason for fasting? We fast so that we can feast on Christ. We fast so we can fill ourselves with him. It's really interesting. God didn't have to make us as beings, actually, that experience physical hunger in fasting. He could have made us like the angels. Angels don't get hungry. They don't sleep. They don't have angel babies and so on. But they also don't experience redemption like we do. They're not made in the image of God like us. I suspect the reason that God made us to be able to experience hunger and thirst is because we can also understand how great it is to have a full stomach and to have our thirst quenched after we're so parched. And God wants to use that little metaphor, that analogy, something we understand, to talk about the greatest spiritual reality of what it's like to be filled with God, to be satisfied with Him as you eat from Him and to have your hunger fully satisfied. You know, as God's chosen children, we have the privilege of eating and feasting on Jesus and knowing what physical hunger and physical thirst feels like helps us to understand the greater spiritual reality of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst and how good it is to have that satisfied. And that is why when we fast and we pray, we realize that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we find ourselves so satisfied in God that yes, I do feel the hunger. Yes, I do feel the thirst when I'm fasting from water, but ultimately my soul is happy. My soul is filled. Jesus said, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this is why, that even if you're tortured, even if you're deprived of food and water for your Christian faith, you can find joy. You can find satisfaction because God's Christ is true food and his blood is true drink. That is what fasting shows us. You know, friends, as we wrap this up today, let me just ask, what are you hungry for? Is it food, social media, or relationships, or money, or a job, the approval of others? You look back at your last 2020 or the last few years, what is it that you're really hungry for? What does your calendar show you about what you truly crave inside your heart? Maybe you've been miserable all this time and you don't know Jesus Christ because you've been chasing after all these things. And what God is calling you to do today is to stop eating those things. Stop satisfying your thirst and hunger with those things that are actually poisoning you and killing you. And he says, turn to me so that you might live. Eat from my son. Have real life. Don't chase the gifts. Chase the giver and find yourself ultimately satisfied. You have never had a banquet until you've tasted Jesus Christ and found him ultimately satisfying. That's what you're missing in life. Do you know that Christ died for your sins and to satisfy that true spiritual hunger that's inside your soul? Only when you eat from him will you have your hunger satisfied. You know, Christians, those of us who have been looking back on our last year, have you been practicing spiritual adultery? 
Have you been putting on spiritual makeup, perhaps, with your prayers, your fasting, the way that you talk, your acts of righteousness? Is that, is that you? Is there some of that actually in your heart? If so, I, I would urge you to start 2021 right. Bring those things before the Lord and say, God, I'm so sorry that I made you into a tool to use to get what I really want. Help me not to love the praise of man, but to love actually what comes from you. To find my soul satisfaction ultimately in you. Why do you do the things that you do? Do you read your Bible only because your kids are watching? Do you pray only because you want people to think you're a good Christian? Do you beg God actually to speak to you in sermons just like this right now? Or does your mind actually beg God, I just wish you would stop talking so I can get back to my hobbies and the things I really like on Sunday morning? Where's your heart really at? Go to God with your needs. Go to him in secret prayer and fasting. And let 2021 be a year in which you bring your burdens before him and that you will know the great pleasure and satisfaction of being full and satisfied with Jesus and him alone. And see if he will not answer your prayers, church. Can you trust him with that? And go to him and know the satisfaction of heaven in our life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know that you love us and you command us to earnestly seek you, O oh God, and to enjoy the praise, not that comes from man, but the praise that comes from you alone. Father, you see the secret motivations of our hearts. And I just pray, O oh God, as a people, you would purge us this year. Get rid of those things, our fear of man, our desire for the praise of man, and help us, O oh God, just to revel in and enjoy you. Help us, God, to be a people who through and through are a secret people of the heart who do what we do because we love you. God, cut out those old sinful tendencies from our souls. Purify us, God, and change our hearts. And let us honor you, O oh God, with the way that we live. God, as we practice fasting and prayer and giving, God, would you just fill our souls with joy and help us to remember, oh God, that to have you is to have the ultimate treasure of our souls. Father, help us to feast on Jesus Christ through our fasting and reorient ourselves on you. In Jesus' name I pray.